Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a bright afternoon here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on this afternoon's show, I'm delighted to have Lindsay Boswell alongside me. Lindsay is the CEO at Fair Share a network of volunteers and staff who source surplus food from the food industry and redistribute it to charitable organisations. Lindsay, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. It's an absolute pleasure. It's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves with us as well, Lindsay. Um, Normally, we would dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree that it has proven to be one of the greatest challenges of our time for leaders within businesses, organisations and, of course, governments and communities alike. But how has it affected you and your operations? Uh, It's had a a huge impact on, on, on our work. Um, and you know, as you said in the introduction, I mean, you very succinctly sort of capture what Fair Share does. Um, but the reason that we do it is that uh, food food is the is we focus on the on the essence of food being around uh, quite often um, around being the nutrients and the energy that keep people sustained. But actually, food creates communities. Food connects people, whether that's uh, people over the Sunday lunch. Uh, people whether breaking fast at the end of Ramadan um, and so on. And the really, really amazing thing about food is the conversations and the relationships that were built over the over the top of it. And so when we see that there is so much food that's going to waste, uh, we want to really make sure that that food is used. And when COVID came along, uh, we took the decision very, very early and very quickly as an organization that we absolutely had a duty to be part of the emergency response. Mm. And normally we don't get involved in emergencies. So, for example, local communities uh, and, and others supported uh, the Grenville fire and the, need for, and the need for food for people directly affected or the emergency services of that. Fair share didn't play a role. But we saw and sensed that we needed to step up. And um, the response from our volunteers and from our staff right across the UK has been extraordinary. So we, at the height of the pandemic, in April and May, we were supplying uh, enough food for three and a half million meals every single week. That's a five times increase on, on, on our normal level of work. I can imagine that given your everyday activities, the staff that you work with and the volunteers that you work with would have inspired you to a high degree. But I can imagine the way that they've stepped up to make that possible during this time has taught you an awful lot about the resilience that they have as well. Completely, and 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 I, I I went into this assuming that some people would struggle and some people would absolutely rise to the top and thrive. And in that latter point, we absolutely saw that. What I think is has been particularly extraordinary is, apart from people who, for very very clear and medical reasons, who needed to go uh, and look after themselves and their own families and go into lockdown, actually. Almost without exception, all of the 1,700 men and women across the UK who uh, have, have make up uh, the heartbeat of Fair Share were phenomenal at stepping up. Uh, and people have worked not just incredibly long hours, um, but not just incredibly intelligently, um, but w- with real empathy and real enthusiasm and support. And... 
moving on from that, um, just shifting focus ever so slightly, um, you say, of course, that you did expect him, a few staff to have some concerns and some rightly there did have to, of course, go away to Shield for some time. Has it been any sort of challenge for you sort of taking into consideration the mental health of those that you uh, work with? Because I can imagine there may have been one or two hiccups in that sense along the way, along with all of the uncertainty and all of the worry that COVID brought about. Totally. And, 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 that, and that's a, this is a really, really important point. And I think, um, I think as a society, we're in a much, much better place, um, principally thanks, I think, to the leadership that the younger generation is showing, particularly those of us you know, who, are, who are in more senior roles, uh, around just how we need to uh, respond in terms of empathy, listening. Uh, there is not one size fits all when it comes to mental health. Uh, every single person is different. And the concerns and, uh, um, and and the level of stress that each individual suffers um, is absolutely legitimate and needs to be taken account of. And um, and I'm really proud of the way that we as an organisation have um, been very front foot in saying we regard this as an important issue. Uh, you need to now, and I think the key essence here is 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 really clear and open communication enabling every individual, no matter what their role within the team, uh, to, to feel comfortable to put their hand up and say, mm. I'm, I'm struggling. Mm, completely understand where you're coming from, from uh, that point of view as well. And interestingly, um, Prior to, of course, your career in um, the uh, the charitable uh, sector, um, I understand, uh, Lindsay, that you were involved in the uh, the British Army for some time as well in the Argyll Sutherland Highlanders Regiment. And, of course, in the armed forces, the importance of mental health is now highly regarded, more so than ever before. But I was wondering, um, are there any sort of elements of leadership that maybe you learnt from that time in your career that you've maybe carried forward into your civilian career in managing some of these organisations? Uh, yeah, of course there has to be, uh, and, partic- and particularly in an, in, in, an, in an emergency situation like this. Uh, and, and I think the main one, um, and uh, and I use this a lot. Uh, now, when I look in the mirror and I challenge myself, um, I grew up in, in in my in my sort of adult life uh, with the mantra that in life there are two forms of decisions you can make. There are easy decisions, easy ways out. And there are hard decisions. And nine times out of ten, the easy decisions are wrong. And part of, I think, my role as a leader is to be in a place in a position where actually you call out those tough calls and you say, look, I know this isn't popular. I know this isn't necessarily what we all want to do. But this is why we've got to do it. And, um, you know, and then there are all of the hackneyed points around, you know, you need to lead by example. And actually, that last point, that lead by example point, I personally have found really challenging because, sadly, I now drive a desk um, more than more than anything else. And so, whilst our twenty-four warehouses across the UK have been in the front line with both the staff and their volunteers uh, travelling in, uh, using public transport if they, if they haven't been able to otherwise uh, get there otherwise, uh, and getting that food out and delivered, I've been stuck in my bedroom. And trying to lead from a position of a bit of garden furniture as your desk mm. in the corner of a bedroom is quite difficult and quite challenging. 
it is a significant challenge, isn't it? Adapting to leading from a distance, as it were. And that's one thing that many executives have really had to get their heads around during this time. But it, but it is a challenge, isn't it? And when we are starting to hear talk about um, homeworking becoming more of a norm in the future, even when offices begin to return more in vogue, it seems to be it's going to be an interesting time um, over the next uh, few months um, for our working practices and just seeing how things sort of pan out in that respect. Yeah, and, and, and again, this is an area that really, really does require leadership. I think some businesses are really struggling with the, um, you know, the, how democratic are they? How much do they just listen to all of their staff and, the, and, the, and their issues of concern? You know, and let's call a few things out here. Some people who perhaps have um, comfortable home circumstances, you know, a nice back garden, um, surrounded by some lovely countryside mm. uh, and, and decent space, actually have found this rather pleasant. And they'd quite like to continue to work like this. But whether that is good for the business is another matter. And yet in another cohort, um, uh, we're a very young organization. Um, We have young men and women who have moved um, our head offices in London, who've moved into London uh, uh, for work purposes and for social purposes, and um, and are perhaps in a bed set because because of the property prices. And we're working really hard and trying to make sure that actually those in management positions who would quite like the status quo to continue um, are not just being able to dominate the uh, uh, the conversation. Um, so we're looking at a we're looking at a balance between effectiveness and efficiency, but also again going back to that for the mental health issue, really looking after the well-being of, of, of our people, but not forgetting the well-being of our of our charity as well. Oh. And, and, and the need to be able to put uh, what our food provision and the need to get that food out to frontline individuals as our number one focus and priority. And just thinking about the future ever so slightly, um, are there some features of the lockdown period that you could envision becoming a permanent part of the way that fair share operates? Yeah. I wish I knew the answer to that at this at this moment in time. Uh, I think the one thing that I'm absolutely certain of is we will remain a different organisation. We've become a uh, we've become quite a different organisation in a range of ways um, through the pandemic, and we've just actually just kicked off a really fast three month review of what was it that we did different, why did we do it differently, what was the decision making around that, uh, and how much of that is relevant for us in the future. I think the key thing that um, for, for my role in, as, as a chief executive has come out of this um, is using technology uh, to be able to connect with people. Ironically, because we, ha- we have people based the entire length of the, of the four nations of the United Kingdom, uh, actually we've never really used uh, virtual meetings effectively in the past, mm. um, but this is this has enabled me to be able to reach out and talk to every single one of our staff in a way that I haven't been able to do before. Uh, that absolutely will remain. And the second point is is around uh, giving people really clear, simple guidance, and then allowing them and trusting them to get on with it. And um, and I probably should have been doing more of that before i'm a bit of a control freak uh, and one of the things that that the last six months has taught me is actually 
I've got a, I've got, I, I knew I had a fantastic bunch of people uh, working with me already, but just how fantastic they are and how much I should just let go and trust them to get on with it uh, has been a real, real lesson. That certainly is very interesting because leadership, I think, um, and feel free to disagree with me here, is about learning, isn't it? Even when we are in leadership roles, we still aren't a finished article. And taking the lessons from this um, experience of crisis management, if we call it that, it's going to be very important going forward, isn't it? Completely, completely. And I, and, you know, and I think sometimes that, you know, talking to your point of making, making it really clear to everybody that, hey, I don't have the answer. Um, or I thought I had the answer, and actually, evidence is beginning to show that that was not the right answer, and that we and that we are constantly learning, and that that's absolutely fine and all right. Um, now, I think one of the biggest things a leader can do uh, is give people permission to make mistakes, and uh, and you know, and, and and totally accept that you're not going to get it right all of the, all of the time. We are, after all, as the phrase says, we're only human. We certainly are. And I do think that that's very, very right indeed. Just before we do wrap things up on uh, this afternoon's uh, programme, Lindsay, I do want to talk about the uh, future just in a little bit more detail, because we do know that we are going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal, as they call it, in the way that we live and the way that we work. But over that period of time, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Fair Share? And where indeed do you see the organisation being in 12 months time? Um, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a fairly sort of uh, um, a fairly robust answer to that. Uh, we are absolutely, as an organisation, we're absolutely terrified about the future. The reason I say that is because we know that every time somebody, um, or every time ten people lose their jobs, or uh, have a, a full-on hardship, or have a uh, an, an increased mental health problem, a small number slip through the cracks. And the amazing 11,000 frontline charity and community groups that we supply food to, who are using that food to connect with people who are vulnerable, mm. um, they are going to see a massive, massive increase in demand. Mm. And they've got some fantastic services. Um, the most important thing that, that, that those 11,000 groups have, have got, and they've all got it in common, is love and the ability to be able to just show somebody who needs some support that, hey, there are other people here for you. We'll listen to you. We'll put an arm around you and we'll help you. And the thing that brings those two into contact is, is, is the food that we supply in the first place. And so the terror comes from the fact that we think the demand um, and all of the evidence that we see, you know, not our evidence, but, but you know, in the, independent evidence, shows that we, we, we're pretty certain there is going to be a dramatic increase in the number of people who struggle to do that most simple and basic of things, which is feed themselves or feed those around them. And um, now there is a really, really good solution out there because in the food industry, 95% of the good quality food that could feed people in need gets thrown away or gets converted into animal feed uh, or or is turned into green energy. All of that could feed people. Uh, so the big challenge that we've got is to mobilize the food industry to 
to really effectively get that message across and say, come on, guys, let's let's make sure that no good food goes to waste. And I certainly hope that they do heed that message because it is incredibly important and indeed inspiring work that you've been doing. And it is a hugely important issue and it is one that can so easily be resolved, as you say there. And I actually think just because of how important an issue this is, that we should catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the programme just to see how those plans are coming to fruition and indeed whether or not that message is being heeded, because it must be. I'm absolutely delighted to do that. I would really welcome the opportunity, Lindsay. It's been hugely inspiring having you joining us on the programme this afternoon. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the airwaves today. And most importantly, until we do, of course, touch base again in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on because there are still plenty of ways that this pandemic itself could go. And, and you too and anybody listening to the podcast. So thank you so much. I also reiterate that message to all of our listeners. Do please continue to take care of yourselves and consider others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. I was speaking on today's programme to Lindsay Boswell, CEO at Fair Share. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and served as MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 and I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about 
more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment 
of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can 
have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on 
the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need 
careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, 
then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full, 
The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, 
listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.